Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. As Dave said, my name is Ruthie Siders. I'm your newest pastor. I'm uh, the pastor for Next Gen Ministry. And I have to tell you that I, I found it a little odd this morning to wake up May 10th, 2015, when on May 10th, 2014, I was at Gordon-Conwell graduating with my doctorate in ministry to emerging generations with no idea the Lord had this in mind. So I'm pretty excited. And um, I'm not sure if he's here, but my mentor is a member of Grace, and uh, he got to hood me, at which point he said, Ruthie, can you believe it? And I was like, no! <laughs> uh, writing academically, that just is, now I get to preach again and do, tell stories. So I hope Adonis is here today. He gets to see that side of me. Um, as we come to this text, I want to encourage any um, children or those of you that are young at heart, um, as we go through the sermon, if you would like to count how many times I say the word call in this sermon, because it's very important to the point of the whole message. <clears throat> I have found that many grown-ups like to do the same. Now, growing up in Maine, one of my favorite things about summer, summer was um, getting to grill that first Jordan's all-natural casings all beef hot dogs. Not just because of their taste, but their awesome red color. And they would snap when you bite into them. I loved these hot dogs. As I have lived across the country in different places, I have made the woeful discovery that they're only available in Maine. And so um, basically what you get in other areas of the country are very pale, boring, pink hot dogs. <laughs> I mean, that not tasty in the least bit, do they? Oh. Um, but, therefore, we need uh, to add to it bright red ketchup. Now, some of you, if you're in my generation, may remember a wonderful commercial for Heinz 57 years ago, which had Carly Simon's song queued up, Anticipation. Just as the person is holding that bottle of ketchup over their hot dog, waiting for that tasty condiment to come out and drizzle over their dog, and you'd hear her voice sing, anticipation <laughs> and your mouth is watering and your stomach starts growling and then you hear that tagline the taste that's worth the wait anticipation that's what I think of every time when I hear that word and that's what I would feel every year as we waited to come from some other part of the country to travel to Long Island Maine for our summer vacation and it was not just to have a Jordan's all-natural casing hot dog, but it was to be home again, to be able to sail down the bay on the ferry boat to Long Island, to go to the cottage that we rent, to see family, and to sit on the deck each evening and watch one spectacular sunset after another. iPhones take pretty decent pictures these days. <laughs> anticipation every summer for rest, for refreshment, for renewal, and for revival, a taste that's worth the wait. As a congregation, we are in a period of waiting, of anticipation, of longing for more of what Jesus has to offer us. We have a sense throughout Lent and Eastertide that God is about to do something new among us. 
And he's asking us to wait expectantly, to wait prayerfully, like, like we're a sailboat that's just waiting for its sails to catch that fresh breeze and start moving us forward again. When I was younger, I used to go sailing with my dad on Little Sebago Lake in his turnabout sailboat. <clears throat> and every once in a while, the winds would die down. And when the winds died down and we would just kind of start drifting, I would get very impatient. And I'd look over and my dad would just be grinning with his tattered old hat and that little stump of a cigar sticking between his teeth. And he'd just grin at me and I'd be like, Dad, how long are we just going to sit here? And then he taught me that important lesson of resetting the sails so that they would catch that breeze, catch that wind, and we'd start moving forward again. I was not content to just float. It's not unlike where we find the disciples this week caught between the wonder of the ascension and the promise of something new, something more that's about to arrive. They're anxious for more of what Jesus had to offer, and then they saw him disappear from their sight. So obediently, they returned to the upper room, yielding themselves to Jesus' Jesus' instructions. They spent much of the time in prayer, day in and day out, waiting and praying. Day in and day out, yielding their hearts, filled with anticipation. They were resetting their sails for what it would mean to receive that promised Holy Spirit. In the midst of this prayerful, active waiting, Peter realized there was something very important for them to do. And this is where we pick up in the text at verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. In those days... So it's clear that we are still in that moment between the ascension and between and Pentecost coming, these 10 days of waiting. There was something that stirred in Peter, the Holy Spirit stirring in Peter during those 10 days, one point in their prayer life that said it was time to stand and speak to those who had gathered there. And he goes on to say that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. It seems that Peter and the others are now suddenly starting to maybe realize that the scriptures had spoken of the coming Messiah, of Jesus, of these events that they have just experienced. And that the scriptures even spoke to the, one, to the fact that the Messiah would be betrayed. Betrayed by one who had been with them all three years. One who had been personally chosen by Jesus. And Peter is pointing out he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. I was looking at this text this past week with the Next Gen team. And as we were reading it and discussing it, one of them pointed out that there's like a hint of tenderness, albeit sadness, in that statement. As though Peter's kind of saying, he was one of us. But then Peter goes on to point out that these scripture texts show that the role Judas had to play was in that greater drama of God. Yet before Luke, who's recording this, tells us what those verses are, he gives a parenthetical conclusion to the fate of this man who was once part of their company. So I move on into verse 18. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong 
his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Thank you, Dr. Luke, <laughs> for giving us that descriptive forensic analysis. <clears throat> Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akel Damah, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Matthew, the gospel writer and one of the twelve, gives us a slightly different account of what happened to Judas on his last days. In chapter 27, Matthew tells us that when Judas saw that Jesus was being condemned to death, he was filled with remorse. He realized this was not what he'd planned. This is not turning out the way he thought it might. He wanted to return the money. And so he goes to the temple and throws the money onto the marble floor of the temple in front of the priests. As the coins noisily jingle across the floor, Judas runs out, filled with despair and grief and conviction of his sin. The priests and the elders suddenly, feeling very virtuous and law-abiding, decide that they should not take that money and put it right back in the temple treasury. But instead, they will go and they will buy a potter's field where they can bury the poor who have no one to bury them. And so when we read Luke's account in Acts, we understand that while Judas did not directly purchase the field, indirectly he did, for it was his money that had been used to buy the potter's field. Peter then, as Luke tells us, identifies a couple of prophecies from the scriptures in reference to the events that were surrounding Judas's actions. Peter mentions these needed to be fulfilled. The first is from Psalm 69. David is writing, You know I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. The implication is that those who oppose David or the Messiah would end their days alone and in a deserted place. Judas dies alone only to be buried in the potter's field, purchased with his own money, received for betraying his friend and rabbi. Then Peter quotes from Psalm 109, a psalm in which David is crying out to the Lord to bring justice upon those who have surrounded him and attacked him without cause. And he calls out to God, may another take his place of leadership. And so then Peter continues in verses 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter makes it very clear the importance of this task by saying it is necessary. It's necessary to choose someone to fill the vacancy in leadership that has been left by Judas's departure. Could they have gotten by with 11? After all, there were over there are 120 that were in the room. For some reason, they are compelled. They must replace Judas. There must be 12 apostles, 12 mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles called and sent to bear witness to what they have seen and heard. And notice the qualifications of leadership. 
one who had been with them all three years. Peter says emphatically, for one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. There must be another called into leadership who can be a witness. The qualifications were not that this next apostle be good at finances just because Judas had held the purse strings for the twelve. They were not looking for some fancy orator or someone that was fluent in Greek and Latin and Aramaic. They were just looking for someone willing to be part of the team. One who was prepared to yield his life to God's will. One who could be a witness to the resurrection of the transformative power of that resurrection with, as a person with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we move into the last few verses of this chapter, beginning at 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the 11 apostles. So they nominated two men, two who had been with them from the very beginning, who were also eyewitnesses to the facts that Jesus lived, he died, and was resurrected. Two men whose lives had been transformed by being in the presence of Jesus. Imagine what must have gone through the minds of Justice and Matthias. They knew it was expected of the 12. They had been with the larger group, that larger crowd of disciples. And Peter and the others must have known them as being committed followers of Jesus for them to have nominated them in the first place. And to say yes to being nominated meant they were both willing to serve if called. Then they prayed. You know, in the past, I had missed those three words. I remember knowing that Matthias had been chosen by the casting of lots. I remember thinking that that was kind of an odd way for the apostles to decide who should be the 12th apostle. In fact, I found myself wondering over the years, was Matthias really the 12th apostle? Or maybe that's Paul, because Jesus really calls Paul. After all, we never, ever hear about Matthias again. Yet when I read this text in preparation to preach, those three words jumped out at me. Then they prayed. They prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. The English translation misses a fascinating point that I found there. For Luke uses one single word for what English uses for. You know everyone's heart is cardiognosta. Cardiognosta. The heart knower, that's who Jesus is. The cardionosta, the heart knower. The heart knower of all men and women. Peter is praying that the heart knower would reveal to them which of the two that they have nominated is the one that he has chosen to take Judas's place. So after nominating the two men, taking time to pray again, specifically over these two names, over these two men, then they cast lots. Now this was actually a very common decision-making tool. When the work had been done of nominating and praying and seeking God, they would then take some stones and they would put the names of the nominees inside of a vessel with a narrow neck. And then they would shake the jar 
trusting God, trusting the God that had been with them as they prayed, that had given them the names that they nominated. They trusted God with whichever stone came out first. This is who God is calling. Now, perhaps you still think this seems a little happen chance. I want you to think about a time recently, perhaps when you've needed to make an important decision. Hopefully you took some time to think about it, to weigh all the options, perhaps even pray about it some. But you, at some point, you, you got to choose. you got to make that decision. As my Aunt Connie used to say, Ruthie, God can't steer a packed car. <laughs> I got a better laugh at this one than my last service. <laughs> Maybe there are times when we, we wonder and we ask, Lord, if this isn't your will, <clears throat> then redirect me. Close that door. But barring that closed door, we're going to move forward. We're going to set our sails, and we're going to wait with anticipation for the Spirit to move us forward. Last week, Brian was urging us to pray with expectancy that God would do a new thing among us, that God would bring revival in our lives, in our church, and in our city. Men and women clapped. I heard audible sounds of affirmation. I watched as heads were nodding in agreement. Yes, we want more. We want more life, more love, more spirit. But as your next-gen pastor, I can't help but ask the following question. Do we want that just for us adults who are here in this sanctuary or in Wilmington and Watertown and East Lexington? Or do we also want more for our children and our youth? Friends, I want to... <clears throat> I want to see young children giddy with excitement at the knowledge that God loves them and Jesus wants to be their friend. I want to see elementary children equipped to realize that they have a voice and they have a place and they have a role that they can play even at 7, 8, 9, and 10 years old. I want middle schoolers to know deep in their core that they are fearfully and wonderfully made as they navigate these rocky waters of adolescence. And I want our high schoolers as they begin to face the future of college or the marketplace to know that they are well prepared and they are equipped to stand and firm on their faith because revival tends to start with students. Amen. But it will demand something of us grown-ups. It will demand us to be prepared to yield to the call of God, to yield to the movement of the Spirit, to yield to Jesus who is our Messiah, our Master, our Savior. We must yield to have our name placed in the jar and to serve as God calls us. If we want more life and more love and more spirit for our children and youth, then I want us to join together in a grand movement of prayer, all of us who are faith parents in this community, and that's all of us are the faith parents of this community offering ourselves to God as he would call us. Now, Mary yielded to the call of God, a call that came at a very inopportune time in her life. Seriously, now you're calling me. I have a wedding to plan. I'm really much too young for this. I have my agenda all worked out. And yet, somehow she was prepared to answer God's call and respond with the simple words, 
I am a servant of the Lord. Tradition tells us she was about 14 years old. That's the age of some of our 8th and ninth grade students. How was it that she was prepared to answer with such maturity? I'm convinced it was because adults in her life had invested in her, had taught her that God loved her, had taught her God's word, and had helped her to realize that she could yield, not if, but when God called, and she could trust him with how he called. Our young people need adults in their lives who can invest in them. Our children need to know that someone knows their name and cares about them, someone other than Barry. Barry's fabulous, Sharon's fabulous, Jenny's fabulous, Jolinda's fabulous. They're our staff people. But they need to know you know who they are as they're running through the halls and around your feet. Our middle school and high school students need to know someone's got their back and is willing to listen to them and not be afraid of them. Teenagers want you to think they're scary, but they really aren't. They're a lot of fun. The next generation, my friends, is not about a group of future men and women. The next generation is about us becoming an intergenerational family that knows and cares about one another. So let me tell you about a few friends that I left behind in San Antonio, Texas. For as excited and thrilled and beyond belief I was that God had called us after 30 years of wandering the country back to New England, I have some dear ones that I've left in Texas. Paul and Anne have grandchildren and great-grandchildren of their own, but they took the time to be faith parents in the back row of the sanctuary every Sunday, getting to know this young family with three little boys, two of them preemie twins, for whom they prayed by name every week. Linda and Field are empty nesters who I paired up with a teenager whose dad had died when she was young. Mom never came to church. A friend had brought her. Linda and Field invited her to worship with them, and they would take her to lunch. Jackie is a school teacher whose favorite thing to do is invite middle school girls out for ice cream. James and Job are two young adult men who lead a small group of eighth grade boys learning about what it would mean to join the church. And Bobby and Becca are building relationships with kids, and the adults, kids of the adults in their small group even while investing their, in their own three growing children. Now, Paul and Anne could have easily said, we have enough to care for with our own children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. We don't have time to get to know this young family that insists on sitting near us every week. But they didn't say that. Instead, they yielded themselves so God could work through them. Linda and Field could have easily said, you know, we've paid our dues. We have been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, and washed the car with it. Go ask someone else. It's their turn now. But they didn't say that. Instead, they yielded to the nudge of the Holy Spirit to open their hearts to this teenage girl. Jackie, Job, and James could have each said, hey, I'm young and single and on my own. I got plenty of time later to get involved in the church. This is my time of life to do what I want to do. They didn't say that. They were willing to be available to God when he called. And Bobby and Becca could have easily said, our hands are full with the three kids we've got, so we have no time to invest in somebody else's kids. But Bobby and Becca were all in when we talked about the church being the extended family of God.
These men and women made themselves available to answer God's call and to make room for young people, taking seriously Jesus' words, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. Men and women like these helped transform a very formal church congregation into a warm, welcoming family. One of the gifts I've been given is to be part of a large extended family. It's one of the reasons I love the TV series Parenthood. It dealt with real issues that large families faced, and no matter what their disagreements, they always managed to find a way to reconnect with one another, not necessarily in that episode and sometimes not even in that year. But eventually, they found their ways back because their family connection was that strong. I want you to watch a clip from the show that beautifully demonstrates what I mean when I'm talking about how I long for the church to become an extended family. Come in. Oh, hi, Runner. We have. Uh, hi, we have. Uh, yes, yes. Come on in. Braverman. Great. All right. Yes, I. There's actually. This is Salsa. He's a lizard. This will take a while. Uh, That's a good idea. Just, uh, okay. All right. Come on in. Come in, please. Come in. Okay. Close the door. Okay, everyone. Please. Hello, everyone. Please. All right. Welcome. Thank you. All right. Uh, so Joel and Julia Graham. Yes. Yeah. Hi. So now you understand that by signing this adoption agreement form, you agree to uh, take care of Victor as your own legal child, right? To provide for his health, his welfare, his educational needs. We do. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Victor, do you understand? Do you agree to this adoption? Yeah. Okay, then. <laughs> All right, well, then, unless anyone has anything to add, I'm ready to make it official. <clears throat> your Honor, yes, sir. me. As grandparents, my wife Camille and myself will do the best we can to uh, to give Victor what we've given our own children, which is our undying love and support. And also, being a baseball aficionado, uh, I would like to teach him the art of fielding the hot grounder. <laughs> okay. But hey, that can later wait till later. later. And uh, Your Honor, I'm sorry if, if I may. I'm Adam Braverman. I'm Zeke and Camille's oldest son, and I promise to be your uncle. Listen, your your aunt Christine and I are no substitute for your stellar parents, but we promise to be there for you no matter what. You can always come to me, Victor, if you need help, and I promise I won't rat you out to your mom. I can give you dating advice. Hmm. And then I can help repair the terrible damage that her dating this? advice does. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to teach you how to ride a motorcycle and play an instrument. Oh, your girl so troubles will vanish immediately <laughs> once you know those two things. Yeah. And you can come to my house anytime. We can play Xbox and you can sleep over and stuff. Now that you're adopted, you can officially hold Wait. my lizards. Okay. <laughs> I promise to love you, buddy. Yeah. No matter what. Me too. Okay. Okay. It's quite a family you're coming into. All right, on this date, January 24, 2013, Joel and Julia Graham have officially adopted Victor Graham. You're now legally their child. You have all the rights of any natural child. Okay. I will hereby sign this order confirming the adoption. All right. That is what I wish for. That is what I wish for 
for the children and for every teen, every young person, that they would have people stacked in their balconies, welcoming them into the family, cheering them on, listening to them when they need to talk, model for them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. A family of faith parents, older adults who will share their love and wisdom, empty nesters who will listen to them and share their own stories, single adults who will hang out with kids who are struggling with feeling alone, parents who will help other kids realize their parents really aren't so crazy after all, and moms and dads who feel equipped and ready and called to be the primary faith parents of their sons and daughters. I want each campus of Grace Chapel to experience more life, more love, more spirit, and discover what it means to be more family. But the question remains, are we ready and willing? Are we prepared to yield ourselves to the movement of this spirit and place our name in that jar? Are we willing to lean into this time of waiting and prayer to reveal our call? Are we willing to be a Matthias, someone that no one might ever hear about, but who was faithful to whatever it was that God called them to. Friends, we do not believe that God has called Grace Chapel just to float, and I did not come here just to maintain what we already have. We have been sensing the winds of the Spirit are building. Something new is coming, and it is time to set our sails in such a way as to catch that fresh breeze of the Spirit and allow God to take us into the next part of our journey forward together as one church, multiple locations, a community of faith parents modeling and training our young people what it means to be the church not just be in the church or join the church but to be the church and together being able to be a witness to the community around us about the transformative love of Jesus Christ On my last Sunday in San Antonio, I had the opportunity to speak with the children in a time for young disciples in each worship service. And at the early service, there were only two little boys, twin brothers, Peyton and Preston. I told them how sad I was to be leaving them. I had known them all, pretty much eight of their, seven of their eight years of life. But I said how happy I was that they were part of a congregation that knew them, that loved them, that knew their names. And I looked up at the congregation of adults sitting there and I said, so I'm asking, who will stand today and say yes to being a faith parent for Peyton and for Preston? And at first, no one stood. I think they thought I was being hypothetical. <laughs> so I waited, praying, whispering, Cardio Nostra, you know everyone's heart. Anticipation. I wondered, will anyone yield to the leading of the Spirit? And then slowly, people began standing. First it was Karen and Richie right over here. And then Pat was a few rows behind them. And then others sprinkled across the sanctuary. Friends, I want more. I want more for the Paytons and the Prestons, for the victors in our midst.
more life, more love, more spirit. I want more for the next generation, because, not because they're the church of tomorrow, but because they are the church of today. We are not the church without our children and our young people. Just as we are not the church without our octogenarians, they are not the church of yesterday. We are all the church of today. So on your way out of worship today, I'm going to ask that you go to the tables outside all of our worship centers and pick up a prayer guide that is entitled, Are You Open to God's Call? It's an invitation to prayer this week. Dave has told us to be praying as we lead into this One Church Sunday event for next week. We all are anticipating the Spirit is doing something. So this gives you a guide on what might the Spirit be calling you as well as calling us as Grace Chapel. That call could be to some kind of next-gen ministry. I warned you that when I was first introduced, I make no apologies for saying that I believe with firm conviction that what we are is about in partnership with families for next generations is of eternal significance. But the reality is, the call that God may have for you might be something else. Hospitality in the cafe a welcome center, ushering, or greeting. It could be to parking lot ministry or the helping hands. It could be to leading in worship or women or men's ministry, Stephen ministry or missions. But none of us will know our call if we are not willing to be available, to be quiet, to pray, to wait, and listen for the still small voice of God. None of us will know our call unless we're willing to set our sails and yield to that fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. So I'm asking each of you to pray this week. Pray that God will raise up not just one person so we go from 11 to 12, but that God would pour out his Holy Spirit upon Wilmington and Watertown and East Lexington and Lexington and all the surrounding towns that are represented by who Grace Chapel is as the body of Christ here. That, so that when God calls, he will find a yielded people, yielded hearts, ready to move where God is saying move, prepared to say, I am the Lord's servant, and our sails set in anticipation of this strong wind that is coming from the Holy Spirit for I believe it is time that Grace Chapel begin moving forward again. And I'm excited to be a part of it with you. And may God alone get the glory. God, I give you thanks for laughter, for sense of humor, for how odd you have made every one of us. How uniquely called we each are and that you have a unique calling on us. Some of us know and are living into it even now. Some of us perhaps we're serving a long time ago and think maybe there's something new even for me. Some of us may feel we're just too young to start like Mary, and yet there are still things that even children and youth can do that are part of building the kingdom. So God, may you be glorified in us as we yield to you this week and as we come back together to celebrate as one church, the body of Christ, next Sunday. To you be the glory, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.